Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now. Your inside look into the best of vice. It's Monday, February 25th. I'm Sophie Kazis. Today, we've got munchies in the studio to talk about food and power, and the history of how grits got weaponized against cheating men. Historian and journalist Cynthia Greenlee understands that food is about relationships and it's about power. She asks, who cooks for whom? Who can leave the table without cleaning? Who picks the strawberries and who pockets the profits? In her recent story for Munchies, Greenlee writes about a particular breakfast staple in Southern Black cuisine that's been known to be used as a weapon against unfaithful or abusive men. That food is grits. So today we've got Munchies editor-in-chief Rupa Bhattacharya talking with Greenlee about the history of Black women seizing this common pantry item, and with it, power. So, Dr. Greenlee, tell me a little bit about how you came to the idea of writing a story for Valentine's Day about people using grits as a weapon. I had thought about doing a story about women using hot grits as weapons for a really long time because I kept seeing all these cultural references, some of which are in the story. Um, I was hearing them on radio talk shows. I saw memes on Twitter and I read them in a number of books. And so I kept thinking about it, but I was wondering you know, will anybody read this as a food story? Because it's not, you know, what a lot of food stories do, which is kind of, you know, celebrate food. And I also, you know, didn't want to do a food story that was predictable. And so this was definitely not either celebratory or predictable. And honestly, Rupa, I probably thought about doing this story for about five years and didn't know that I could find the right publication for it for a lot of reasons. I doubt it whether or not I would be able to balance the humor with the seriousness of the topic because it is about domestic violence in some way. And I also really wanted to write a food story that would resonate with Black folks. So it's funny, you know, I I have so many questions to ask you based upon what you just said. But um, so you sent me this this email that said, I really want to write this story about about grits and uh, women using grits as a weapon. And I I think seven minutes later, I said, yes, I wanted to, to commission it. I read that and I thought, I have never seen a story that I wanted to commission more and was more certain about in possibly my career. And one of the reasons for that, personally, is that I personally am really interested in the intersections of food and power, which I think you tease out really beautifully in the story about how food lays bare the dynamics of who cooks for whom, who gets pleasure, who doesn't, you know, and where do you think like the throwing of grits fits into that dynamic? What What's grits's role here? Well, you know, the interesting thing about it is that I was influenced in writing this piece after, you know, I really, really decided to pitch it and pitch it to you specifically because 
I had been thinking about a book called God's a Kitchen, which was about cooking in the middle of conflict. And I saw the author and Layla Haddad speak about it. And so I thought about, oh, I was like, oh, I can write about conflict and food, not in the way that she does in that book, which is actually talking about um, war and occupation and a very long struggle between different nations and ethnic groups. But I thought about, okay, I can write about this in terms of conflict, in terms of the domestic. And when I say the domestic, I mean two different things. I mean the domestic in terms of the household, which is, you know, where most of us, you know, we live our lives at work or at our homes. They're the most important places to us. But I could also think about it in terms of something you know, really seemingly mundane, you know, in the Southern kitchen, which is grits and that domestic part of it. And so I think the thing that, like, makes this so compelling to people, Rupa, is that it sounds so odd, but it's also really homely. And there's something also about the idea of taking something that they might, you know, use on a daily or a weekly basis. If you're a Southerner, you probably have grits a couple times a week and using it to take power. And, you know, this is in some ways an underdog story for a lot of people because I've always heard of tossing grits um, by a woman as a way to get back at a man who has somehow abused you or used you or misused you. So he's either a terrible cheater or he is, you know, in some cases a wife beater. And so grits is, you know, this ultimate in, in revenge. And so I think that there's something about it that, you know, it doesn't take much. You've got a simple item, but at the same time, it's creative, has a punishment, and it also, you know, allows us to say that people who have been abused can defend themselves or be aggressors. And I also think that's another reason why this resonates with people, because despite the fact that we've seen all these recent books about women in anger, we don't know what to do with women's anger. Absolutely. And, you know, it's something really interesting that I've been thinking about, especially since you just mentioned the domestic thing. In the tradition, like the culture that I come from, one of the ways that women respond to in violent ways in the, in domestically is by throwing shoes or hitting hitting people with their shoes. But that's a very, like, of the moment thing, right? It's a very, like, mm-hmm. instantaneous flash of rage thing. Whereas with the grits, it's interesting because it's premeditated because both... In the poem that you're that you cite in the beginning, as well as with Al Green and a couple of the other stories, I think the people are cooking the grits specifically with intent, and that's really interesting to me as well. Like it's not a flash of rage, like hitting somebody with your shoe is. It's a creation of a domestic weapon in a way, which I thought was really interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really super. Uh, I think it's super fascinating. You, know, one thing that I've heard since the story was published, I've heard from people who talked about how they heard about hot grits. So one person said, "Hey, I'm Puerto Rican, so you know, my mother always told me this is a way that I could get back at a man. So maybe there's something about it um, that goes beyond the Black South. Um, maybe there's something about it that in the African diaspora. But I also heard of people using other food items. So in one case, someone told me they remarked on my Facebook page when I posted this that oatmeal would do. So I was like, oh, I hadn't heard of oatmeal. And another friend called me and said, I read this story, and it made me think about my aunt and uncle who had had this long, tumultuous marriage. And one day she got fed up with his cheating, and she threw stewed tomatoes on him, which I thought, I was like, "Hmm, how does that work? Because the stewed tomatoes don't actually stick. Like, I've really been thinking about kind of the mechanics of it. Like, Having something that will stick to the flesh and that's grainy, you know, is a special type of torture. Like, it's not the same thing as hot grease. 
which is something that, you know, I was hearing from some of my white Southern friends that, um, particularly from rural places, that, you know, there's a similar practice, but it's hot grease in their communities. So I think there's all these different foodstuffs that can be used as weapons, but grits just have this, this certain flavor to it, you know, pun intended there, I think, because grits are such an iconic Southern food. One of the things I love the most about the piece is how it very actively and deliberately centered a black reader. I would love to hear a little bit more about how you did that. I think there are a couple of things linguistically that were really interesting to me. Some of them were lyrics, how you placed them into the text, as well as the alliteration. And I noticed that those things really did pop off with readers. So I would love to hear a little bit more about sort of your approach linguistically. Right. So I spent a long time thinking about where this piece could go, and I wanted to work with an editor who would be sensitive to the cultural nuances, but even if they didn't know them, would be you know, willing to do some playing and experimenting with this piece. And so, you know, one of the questions for me was, how do I signal to Black readers? How do I talk to them, even if I'm not necessarily publishing a piece in a a publication that's geared towards African-Americans or people of color. And so one thing that I really consciously did was I initially thought I want all my sources in the story in some way to be Black people or from Black text. Now, I didn't totally succeed in that. So um, there's at least one white person quoted, but most of these sources came from the cultural products of Black America. So there's literature, there's film, there's music, there's a little bit of everything. There are legal cases that have to do with people throwing hot grits. I trained as a legal historian, and so that was a remarkable archive. But then there was also the way I wrote the piece. And so you noted that there were lyrics. So for instance, you know, I talk about Al Green and that story that almost everybody where I come from knows, like if you're a black person of a certain age and your parents listen to soul music, you have heard this story, right? But I talked about Al Green and then I used in at least one case, a lyric of his that's very famous, right? Um, Even though I paraphrased it a little and it wasn't set off in quotes. And I'm speaking specifically about saying, you know, love will make you do right, love will make you do wrong. And so that's in the piece, and it's not in quotes, because I want it to speak to people for whom this is part of their cultural vocabulary. And if you get it, I felt like not using the quotes, like, helps the reader be comfortable in the piece, a little bit like a scan. And if you don't get it, you simply don't get it. You're not missing anything because you still get the richness of the language, but you may not get the reference, and that's okay. And I think about that a lot when I write because I'm a historian and a journalist, and I write for multiple audiences. But this piece, I felt like this would really resonate with black folks who know the Al Green story and also you know, are interested in you know, exploring our community's lore ourselves. I want to say that one of the responses we got on Twitter, and we got lots of them, but the one that stuck in my mind was a tweet from someone who said, oh, you know, you wrote this for black people who, you know, didn't grow up in black communities. And I did respond to that one um, specifically and try not to be in my feelings or be really salty about it because I did feel kind of salty about it because actually my intent was the exact opposite which was to write for black people who are, you know, deeply rooted in their communities. And I think we accomplished that. Um, In terms of language, language is super important for me. So I grew up in the Carolinas in, you know, urban and rural communities. And as a kid, as a black Southerner, I listened and spent a lot of my time with black elders. And part of my culture is all about storytelling. And a lot of that storytelling is about language. And so 
I want it to, in some ways, kind of replicate, you know, the language of the places and the people I come from. So some of it's very plain spoken. Some of it I talk about my cousin who was saved in the piece and call her sanctified cousin, like capital letters, like titled, because people in my culture give people nicknames a lot. I also use a lot of alliteration because wordplay is a particularly important part of Southern African-American culture. You know, I tell people we may talk slow, but we think fast. And that's important to me. That's interesting that you got that feedback because it, to me it feels it, it does feel like the opposite. Um, one of the things that I feel really strongly about as an editor, and it's something I think the reason one of the reasons that you and I I think work together so well is that I think I feel very strongly personally that nobody should feel like they're not the audience, and so by putting things in quotes, by putting parenthetical explainers, by annotating in one way or another, what you're saying essentially is you're saying that like you, person for whom this is your culture and this is innate to you, and you grew up with these references around your kitchen table, you're not my intended reader. And that's not how I want people to feel. I want people to feel as though they, the people who grew up hearing the story around their kitchen table, I want them to feel as though it is their intended reader, right? And so that's precisely why I don't really like italics. I don't like setting things off in quotes. I don't like parenthetical explainers. I want people to either miss the reference, get the reference, or look up the reference. Like, we all, especially as people of color in the world, need to operate with the ability to sort of code switch into the dominant culture, and every so often we should have the ability to have something that's for us. Absolutely, and I think that's why the piece was kind of popped with people. I can't tell you how many messages I got from people that said, okay, number one, my family has a hot grit story. And I was like, where were y'all when I was researching this? But mm-hmm. anyway, and then other people said, I just love the language. People really, really loved a couple of turns of phrases. Harm by homily. by homily. Yes, that was probably the top one. And, you know, the funny thing is part of my creative process is that, you know, I tend to think a lot about the stories before I ever put them on the page. And I actually tend to dream phrases. And so that was one that I was thinking about the story before I ever pitched you and went to bed and dreamed about the story and saw myself writing that phrase. That's amazing. That's incredible. I would like to ask you about one more thing, which is that we talked about this a little bit. I know initially when you when you pitched the story, and I think you handled it so beautifully and delicately. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you handled the fact that this is essentially a funny thing in pop culture, right? Tyler Perry's making jokes about it. It's a meme. People joke about it. People laugh about it at the barbershop. But it's also domestic violence. So how did you thread that needle? I think you, I think you, personally you did an incredible job with it. But what was your sort of process when you did that? Well, thank you. Um... I, this was kind of the central tension for me as a writer in the story, and I wanted readers to feel that tension as well, but not to feel it in such a strong way that it would stop them from kind of appreciating the different responses to this cultural practice. So I initially really thought, okay, so how am I going to do disclaimers in this piece? Like, okay, so I want to say this isn't funny, but then how do I explain that so many of the pop culture references are funny? Um, the story about Al Green and Mary Woodson allowed, you know, me to introduce some some seriousness into it because, you know, after she throws the grits on him, he goes to the hospital, you know, he's severely injured. Well, she shoots herself. She yeah. um she commits suicide. And so that's really sobering. And 
I want it to include that part of the story because that's the part of the story we never hear. We hear about men being outgreened by jealous wives or girlfriends or lovers, but we don't hear that part of the story that a real woman was alive and then she wasn't and her family lost her. And you have to think about, you know, what Al Green thinks about this all these years later when a woman that, you know, he loved and met briefly killed herself in his house. Like, how do you go back to the kitchen after that? That's like one of the stories I kept thinking about. And I was thinking, how would you do that? How do you go back into the kitchen when you saw her stirring the grits? And that was the last, like, those were the last words she exchanged before she ended up throwing grits on you and killing herself in your house. And also what happens when a violent assault on you becomes a running joke and your name becomes synonymous? I guess I was thinking about it in the context of like Lorena Bobbitt, who now is also experiencing a redemption arc as well. Also a woman of color, also a woman of color, you know, in a position of, you know, in a, in a domestic abuse scenario, who whose name became a joke and her worst life moment turned into a, her punchline. And it's like with Al Green as well. How does what happens? How do you move forward? Yeah, it's just it's a very... What happens when you become a punchline? It's the part of the story we never talk about. And, you know, the part of the story, and I didn't include this in the piece, though, Rupo, was that, you know, he was a suspect at first. They weren't exactly sure that she killed herself, even though he was cleared of any suspicion relatively quickly. But I also think that, you know, one thing that helped me here was that I, as a historian, write about sexual violence. And so in the 19th century against black girls, particularly And so I've had a lot of experience thinking about violence and the way we talk about it and thinking about the ways we glorify it or in some cases we make it invisible. And that's one of the things, you know, I was thinking about because there's an anecdote in the piece where I talk about a family conversation that I remember. And this is probably the first time I ever heard about Soaring Hot Grits as punishment and gender justice, as I say in the piece. I was probably about 10 years old. And so... You know, I didn't have any relationship experience, but I remember being really shocked by hearing about this at the kitchen table about a distant relative who did this to her partner. And I was shocked because I was like, you know, my parents taught me never to put my hands on anybody, much less hot grit. And I was shocked by the kind of responses around the table that there were people laughing. There were people who, you know, kind of were laughing in a shamefaced kind of way. There were people who took it really seriously, and there was also silence at the table. And so I knew that somehow this was an event that could be interpreted in a lot of different ways and knew that also that it was something I probably shouldn't talk about outside the house, even though all the adults were, and I heard many whispers of it in different ways. That's super interesting. Yeah, I really am curious about, like, because that was a really interesting um, pushback we got. We got a weird pushback from, like, men's rights activists who were like, oh, yeah, you know, toxic violence is feminine, too. And it's like, okay, you know, fair. But is that is that what you take away from this? That seems like a very cheap takeaway. I, I think that is a cheap takeaway. But, you know, and this is one of the reasons why this was a difficult story to think about, because I was like, what's really the message about female violence? What's the message about domestic or interpersonal violence? And I think the message for me is that there are multiple messages. And I'm not sure that I totally, um, you know, think that a men's rights message is the dominant one. I think it has to do with the ways in which, you know, women are taught in our society to really value this relationship and to value the monogamous heterosexual relationship, usually the marital relationship, 
And so that becomes such a focus of our lives if, you know, if we live by the script of this culture that some of these behaviors like tossing grits can be a valid response when somebody violates that marital contract or agreement or your trust. Absolutely. And it's coming from a position of incredibly reduced power, sort of in this incredibly intersectional way. And it's like, it's a very, very nuanced thing. Because I'm a food editor, I do have to ask you about your feelings towards actual grits, like eating grits as opposed to throwing them. Like, what's your what's your relationship to grits? Well, so this, this is really funny. I'm famous in my family for not eating grits as breakfast food. I do not eat grits as breakfast food with either salt and definitely not sugar, um, which is heresy to most people um, who have kind of a food way in common with me. But I do eat them with shrimp and grits. And in fact, I had shrimp and scallops last night for dinner. And I was kind of just looking at my shrimp and scallops and thinking, okay, what could I do with this? I was like, how would you like actually set up this hot grit situation if I was going to throw it? at a lover who's done me wrong, which I do not have. I mean, I've had terrible breakups, but this is not something I would really consider for myself as a possible uh, way to, you know, to get mine. But I really, yeah, I don't keep grits in my house. And that's probably been the number one question I've gotten from people, which is, you know, have you done this? And I keep telling people, all writing does not have to be autobiographical. But my partner knows that I don't eat grits. And after seeing this article, if he saw grits in the house, he probably would be a little suspicious. Fair. We'd have to be especially premeditated because you wouldn't just be stirring them and cooking them. You'd be going to the grocery store, buying them, coming home, stirring them, cooking them and preparing. That's fair. They give him ample time to get away, though. That's like a good, you know, 20, 30 minute, you know, lead, lead time that they'd get in that case. It's, it's not it's not something that I ever plan to do, even though one of my dear friends, who's the author, Monica White, who has a great book out about African-Americans farming and civil rights, told me that I would never be able to get another date again after this piece. I told her I'm not really worried about that. Fair enough. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Looking forward to talking again soon. Thank you so much. You can read the full story at munchies.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.